everybody, welcome to Bone to Pick. We are coming to you today from Symphony Hall here in Boston, Massachusetts, home of the great Boston Symphony Orchestra. And uh, our artists of the month are the Boston Symphony Orchestra trombone section, uh, principal trombone, Mr. Toby Oft, Steve Lang, the second trombonist, and Jim Markey, bass trombone. And uh, just thrilled to be in Boston this weekend. Uh, I'm a guest uh, guest soloist for the Brass Bash event tomorrow at uh, New England Conservatory. Yeah, thank you and very much for, for coming. Oh, really right. looking forward to it. Totally my pleasure. And one of the highlights for me is getting an opportunity to play with you guys and play on uh, oh. my pieces. So that's that's going to be oh, a, looking forward to that really a treat for me. Um, and, and I really wanted to take this opportunity to sit down with these great young players and talk about uh, their journey and what has led them to uh, their positions in the Boston Symphony Orchestra. I think by all accounts, you guys are the hot orchestral trombone section anywhere in the world right now. People I talk to, there's a lot of energy and synergy about what's going on in Boston with your guys' section. And um, it seems like the timing of everything worked out really well. They uh, followed a, a very established and great uh, trombone section before them, Ron Barron, principal trombone for many, many years, Norman Bolter, of course, Douglas Show on bass trombone, great section, and now the window of opportunity there for you guys to, to form your own identity and, uh, and create this great section that you're uh, well underway doing. Um, Toby, you joined in 2008, I think, it's 2010, and then Jim just this year in 2012, this season, I should say. Um, obviously, it's a great... Uh, uh, opportunity to land in one of the big five, as they're known, big five orchestras in the United States. Uh, clearly a great history here in Boston. The orchestra started in 1881 with incredible lineage of conductors, Kusevitsky, Ozawa, most recently James Levine. Um, so anyway, guys, let's jump right in. I know that uh, most of our viewers know all about you and know your uh, incredible list of accomplishments already, but maybe maybe we could start off by just having each of you give a brief uh, overview and uh, um, tell us a little bit about your journey uh, and how it led you to the Boston Symphony. Toby, maybe we can start with you. Well, uh, it's a long, arduous story. <laughs> I, I, I hate to say it isn't that glamorous, uh, but I spent uh, probably, yeah, the entire time before I got here, I, I, actually between high school and arriving in Boston, I never lived anywhere longer than two years. Mm. Maybe three, maybe two and a half years, somewhere around there. It was a very transient lifestyle, but went to Oregon State, for a couple of years, and I went to Indiana for three years, and I went to Northwestern. And then after finishing my master's at Northwestern, I freelanced for a while in Florida, and Buffalo, then back to Florida, and to San Diego, and then here. It was a very surreal experience, actually, when I passed the three-year mark, realizing that I was really going to stay here. And it was, you know, nobody was going to pinch me and wake me up from <laughs> the dream. Uh, so... I don't know. I, I just would say it's it's been a long road, and I think the hardest thing to get past actually was uh, setting up a life in a new location, like Florida, for example. I had a, a great life there, uh, where I had a lot of extracurricular activities, like you know, I, I was in a cycling club and uh, friends with a number of people in the orchestra. Same thing in San Diego. I had a different life set up there, and every time I had to leave, it was, it's like all these relationships and may as well have died. It, it was really sad. Mm -hmm. and, and, and much of acclimating to a new place was allowing these, um, this other life to sort of like evaporate. Um, terrible way to put it, but it's a very effervescent way to look at the past where, uh, you know, I keep in touch with these people, but it's not like it used to be where I would see them every day and get used to thinking about seeing them tomorrow. Mm -hmm. 
it's got to be a good feeling now being in a great city like Boston, and you're going to clearly be here for yeah for a long time. So that's it's that's, beautiful. Yeah, it's very beautiful. I know. I think that when I arrived, <laughs> I remember uh, Mike Rayliss, our great uh, tuba player. He was in his sixth season, and, uh, and he says, yeah, it's just now starting to feel like it's real. Yeah. And uh, he's right. It's, yeah. This is my sixth season, and it's just now starting to feel like I belong here. It's really beautiful. That's great. Steve, how about yourself? How about me? Um, where did all things begin? Um, <laughs> well, I, I come from a non-musical family, and um, so when the time came in sixth grade to pick, actually it was fifth grade, to pick an instrument. Um, I was a, a bit rebellious at the time and uh, went into the interview and there's all these instruments and and um, so I, picked, I, I tried them all but I felt like I wanted to play the biggest one. Come home and show my parents, ha 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 ha, look what I got, I got, I got the biggest instrument they have, it's a trombone. And, and um, so I, I brought that home but the main reason was to, in, in retrospect, very ironic because because you could either be in band or you could be in choir. And the rumor was that if you went into choir, one of the requirements of sixth grade choir was to be able to sing a solo in front of everyone. And there was no way I was going to do that. <laughs> so I so I picked band, got the trombone, and, and it was just it was just fun all the way through uh, all the way through. Um, I was more of a sports guy. Uh, so I played a lot of baseball, and I loved the team aspect of, of playing baseball and basketball. I played tennis. I, I, I did everything. And there was a, a particular moment, and I, I remember this, when it was either going to be from 6th grade to 7th grade if, if I was going to play football or be in band. I couldn't do both. And I remember scratching out the little box on my the yellow registration card to the point where I had poked a hole through. I'd gone back and forth between football and and band, and I, I, you know, obviously I thought, well, I've got other sports I can play too. Let's just go with the band. I mean, there were so many times throughout um, throughout school, going even through Indiana University, where Toby and I uh, met first, where I thought this is the end of the line for me. This is the end. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's fine. I'll mm -hmm. go. I'll, I'll I'll still be a happy person, mm -hmm. but. Something just kept drawing me back, and it was fun. So I ended up going to Indiana after high school, and um, and then um, and then Juilliard happened, and uh, after that, uh, spent a year in San Antonio Symphony for a year, and then uh, spent a better part of my life in, in St. Louis, uh, ten years there mm -hmm. until uh, 2010, where the spot opened and gave it a shot, and here I am. So very happy to be here. That's cool. Well, I'm sure your your time in St. Louis uh, served your baseball. Uh, yeah, it did. It did. I, quite well. I instant, did. instant Cardinals fan. Instant. It didn't take long. It did <laughs> not you, take have long. You, uh, have you switched over now that you're in Boston? Or you're, uh... I, you know what? Because my six-year-old son is a baseball fan, I I am sure that it won't take long for me to become <laughs> right. a Red Sox fan. That's... Just through through his fanship. <laughs> right. I'm sure That's, it'll happen. That's good stuff. <laughs> Jim, how about yourself? I know you've had uh, quite a distinctive past, so why don't you share some of that with us? Well, as for me, I mean, my getting started on a... On the trombone was it was just through our middle school band, and my older brother played trumpet. I grew up in a family where we didn't have a whole lot of resources just for, uh, shall we say, recreational activities. So, but for us, music was really important. It was a recreational thing. It was something you did for fun, either singing or being part of uh, just enjoying music. 
And so BAM was just another way, it was another extension of doing that with the trombone. I never really even considered it as a viable career until I hit about 15, 16, and started doing well in all states and thought, oh, gee, maybe this would be kind of fun to do. And met Joel Essie in my junior year in high school. And he said, you know, you really, if you're not getting lessons, you know, I'm available and I'd love to work with you. And I said, that would be awesome. And so, <laughs> so, you know, and so I go to Juilliard and, you know, one year in high school, two years at Juilliard, and then I wound up in Pittsburgh. And uh, after two years in Pittsburgh, I wound up in New York as assistant. And I was there for nine and a half years. And then uh, base is effective June 2007. And then here this year, and if you asked me a year and a half ago, I would have told you I'm going to be a New Yorker for life. I grew up in New Jersey, and mm-hmm. so I was very familiar with the whole tri-state area, and, and except for the two years that I spent in Pittsburgh, my whole life was centered in the New York area. And even a year and a half ago, like I said, I, I would have said I'll be a New Yorker for life, but when this position came open, it was the perfect timing. It was just the right job at just the right time, that if it come open probably two years sooner or maybe even two years later, if the circumstances weren't what they were, I'd probably still be in New York. But being as it is, I mean, it's it's just amazing that I'm here. And um, I'm really, really glad and excited to be here. I miss everybody in New York. I really love being here. This is awesome. That's great stuff. I mean, I I find it amazing that just following the orchestral world, that's not kind of where I live, but following it, the, the opportunity for a section to develop, like you guys have guys all three of you in your 30s, and an opportunity to, to forge ahead for many, many years together, it's, a, it's really special when that lines up like it did. Um, you know, being in this hall, it's like I, I played here only once many, many years ago, I played here with a uh, pop singer that I was working with at the time, and I was so excited to play in Symphony Hall in Boston because I'd heard about it for so many years. And uh, so I got to the sound check early and played a little of my, you know, version of Mahler 3 on my 2B. But, you know, <laughs> give you the heebie-jeebies just thinking about it. But uh, but anyway, I had a good time, like, just trying to, uh, try to you know, my orchestral fantasy. But anyway, it, all the kidding aside, uh, I, it struck me as, like, the best hall I've ever played in, and I've been fortunate to play in a lot of them like like we all have, but it just, I was amazed at how good the acoustics were and how good it just felt to play in this hall. So, obviously, you guys live here. This is your house, and, and uh, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it's like to play in Symphony Hall, and then also, maybe if you just have a couple other halls that are favorites of yours that you've been able to play in uh, throughout your career. Maybe, Jimmy, you want to start with you coming from, uh, you know, you're, you have a vast touring experience, which you all do, but you in particular have played <coughs> around the world many times over. Yeah, sure. I mean, you have it right. The Philharmonic does do a lot of touring. And um, probably most of the big places that there are to play, now at least a fair number of them I've played already, um, the Symphony Hall certainly ranks... When you get to the level, the the kind of level of hall that Symphony Hall is, it's sort of like getting to the, the either the best baseball player or the best trombonist. I mean, who is the best? Well, you might have individual preference for one or the other, but I would probably put Symphony Hall and the Concertgebouw and the Musikfreund in Vienna and the, mm-hmm. the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam. I'd put those three at the top of my list for my three favorite halls to play in. And this really is my my favorite hall in this country. And I love Carnegie Hall dearly. There's a very particular kind of uh, sound 
that you get from this hall. That I think it's it's really really special and it's a really amazing and uh, fabulous place to play. Just the first to start off with, just the reverberation that you get, mm-hmm. the feedback that you get, and the amount that you actually hear when you're on stage across the stage and around. And here, I think with many of the great halls, you really feel like you're part of something, not just a section, but you're part of this big, larger, organic mass. And um, that really is the way I feel about this place. It This hall turns the orchestra into, shall I say, large-scale chamber music. And when we're at our best, that's really the way it feels. One big chamber music ensemble that just happens to have 85 people, 90 people on stage at a given time. It's really awesome. It's a great wow. place to play. It's a great way to put it. Steve, how about yourself? Well, yeah, I, I, I haven't had the uh, experience of going all over the the uh, the world and and seeing the halls that I'm, I hope to someday and I think we will eventually. Um, we don't have a music director at the moment, and so touring has been halted for the last couple couple of years. But I think I think we'll we'll get back there and we'll go see some of those halls. And I can't I can't wait to try them. Mm-hmm. But uh, I can speak the, to to the BSO's hall. Um, it is a great hall. It's uh, it's a it's a great hall. And the thing is, is that I've, I've taken the audition here, and I remember pulling out my horn and getting ready to play my first note uh, for the audition. And, wow, this is, feels really comfortable. It's very f- a forgiving hall. And one of the great things about the hall, I think it's well-balanced. And so it's not too bright. It's not too muddy. And then the, uh, the sonics and the, and the, 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 mid, the mid-level, you know, if you, if you have the... Uh, the You've got treble, bass, and mid. You know, the mid is, is there, too. It's not absent. And so for it's just well-balanced across the spectrum. And so that's one of the great things about it. And the other thing is, is that you feel like you can have lots of different shades of articulations. You can kind of sneak in, and you, you, hear, you hear audience members say, where did, where did you guys start? Yeah, all I heard was just you were there, but there wasn't a percept, perceptible attack. And so that... The hall lets us do those kinds of things where other halls, you know, you may not be able to, to, you know, have those kinds of shades. Um, soft playing is one of the great things about the hall. We can do that and uh, here at, at the hall. Um, allows us to do that. I remember we, uh, my, one of my first years here, um, you weren't here yet, Jim, but but uh, James Line was conducting the um, prelude uh, Tristan and the Solar. The prelude and, prelude and um, Liebestow. And when we get to Liebestow, there's this really great bass, bass clarinet line, and then all of a sudden the whole orchestra stops, and it's just trombones playing a very, very pianissimo chord. And uh, you feel really naked, and it's like, oh, we really can play soft. We really need to, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll never forget when, when um, James Levine turned us and he said, that was great, and the, the dynamic is great, and if that's how you, if you feel comfortable playing at that dynamic, that's just fine, but it would be spectacular if you could play it softer. And so, I, I'll never forget that. You remember that? Oh, it was, it was electrifying. I mean, we had our, we had our, our horns underneath our chairs facing backwards, but it, it really turned out great. So, um, anyway, so that's, that's the hall. That's yeah. the that was a good. That's a good memory. I remember when we finished that chord, and we looked at each other, mm-hmm. you, me, and Doug, of course, and we're all like, "That's the softest we've ever played." <laughs> that was so amazing. And then Jimmy was like, "Yeah, even softer." We're like, 
uh, or in the orchestra. It's, it's an extension of all of our instruments. Mm-hmm. Great way to use it. Yeah, great way. Yeah, well said by all of you. It's really good insight into into the specialness. Let's talk for a moment about uh, the role each of you plays in, in the makeup of the section. Um, maybe I'd, I'd like for each of you just to give us a feel for you know what you feel your role and responsibility is to the section, and then also maybe what you look for uh, from the other members of the section. Um, I know Jim and Steve, you guys have played all three chairs, um, and uh, I'd like you to maybe address that as well. But um, Toby, why don't we start with you? You're the principal player. What do you uh, maybe talk about those factors? And- well, uh, I think I think the the best way I can answer that is to to say the experience that I gained just observing uh, my colleagues, effective and not so effective, uh, as I came up through different orchestras. And, uh, and I found that the brilliant players seem to celebrate the brilliant people around them. I mean, they, in addition to being fantastically gifted on their instruments, they, they were acutely aware of the intelligence and, uh, and the gifts brought by other colleagues. And I am truly surrounded by brilliant people. So uh, uh, the experience of the gentleman on my right... Uh, I, it would be foolish of me to uh, to not make room for that or even celebrate that in, in every possible opportunity. But the truth of the matter is, uh, in all the brass, I am surrounded by brilliant people. And I consider my job to sort of match Tom and Jamie as best I can. And then... Uh, Who are the... Just for sorry, our Tom Rolf's uh, principal trumpet mm-hmm. and Jamie Somerville, principal horn. Okay. Uh, in, in every ensemble situation, that would be uh, everything from pitch, rhythm, and, uh, and dynamics, especially to try to, uh, try to make sure that we're all on the same page. But then uh, oftentimes uh, that won't agree with uh, the trombone section, uh, notwithstanding the tuba as well. Uh, and so there's a, a constant dialogue uh, that has only... Uh, been a problem if we stop talking. Uh, mm-hmm. if, if people just assume that everything is great, it's like we have a great week and then the next week it's not so great and then we have to start talking again. And and we we sort of combine intelligence and it, and when I say that, that, that sort of suggests that we're always in constant agreement. That's very much not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it becomes a discussion and sometimes we don't have time to discuss and then we just do our best to keep the hierarchy of... Uh, of melody intact, or typically, if uh, you know the top voice is leading, such that if you know Jamie has the melody, we need to do everything we can to facilitate his phrase goals and, and uh, dynamic range. Likewise, if Tom is the, is also leading, and there just isn't time for the discussion, we just go with Tom. But mm-hmm. uh, if there is opportunity for discussion, I think oftentimes we're we're uh, all working hard to communicate with each other, and I it might be one of the gifts of youth, or it might be one of the one of the best gifts of being uh, surrounded by intelligent people is that they're they're really eager to uh, share the responsibility of keeping it at such a very high level. And uh, when when anybody tries to do that all on their own, it becomes very problematic, and a dialogue uh, disappears, and going to work isn't very fun. So yeah. I think what Toby's talking about in in simplistic terms is just really one big team. Mm-hmm. And so, and that, that's the way I like to think of it because, you know, uh, when I was, like I said before, I was a sports guy and I was on, on the baseball team. And, and 
you know, so a lot of times I'd play right field and I wouldn't get the ball for six innings and the ball would come, oh, everyone's reliant on me now mm-hmm. to make the play. And that's kind of how we are, we function as a section because we're not really that important every time we pick up our instrument. Sometimes when we pick up our instrument, it's really important. Sometimes it's really soft, like in the Wagner's, you know, Liebestuhl. Or sometimes we're, you know, we have we have to know what our role is, what our function is. And in in the uh, within the section, we all have our roles too. And um, I think Jim and I could both talk about about playing all the different roles within the section. Uh, first trombone, second trombone. I've even played some bass trombone, and doing that has really opened my eyes to see that, yeah, there are certain challenges. Um, You see chords built in such a way that it doesn't happen very often where the third of the chord is is in the bass trombone, but when it does, you really need to know that that's what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because it kind of, you really need to know. So, yeah, so things like that, or you realize we also really need to know that the air just comes out of the bass trombone a lot quicker. So so we have to, we have to, as the first, first trombone, second trombone, you know, checking, okay, can we breathe here? Or can we make this phrase? How do you feel about this? Should we have a group breath? Or should we stagger our breathing? And so um, we're always mindful of of, uh, of what the other part is doing. And I th- and that's the great thing about the section is we've all done this now. We've all played all the parts. I mean, you, you well, maybe, maybe no bass drum for you. <laughs> but, but, okay, well, that's okay. That's okay. But that, that's just been one of the really neat things. As a second player, I, I love playing second. Sometimes, you know, a lot of people think of it as an unheralded um, position. But I think without it, without, uh, I, I, I happen to love it very much because, because it's, I'm part of the team and make, try to make the section sound great uh, with, with great pitch, good sound. And, um, and that's there just every once in a while, something will get thrown my way where I get to put on the principal hat and uh, Scheherazade or mm-hmm. Tuba Mira, where mm-hmm. it's just me. And I relish those opportunities. Or sometimes, and a lot of times, actually probably more times than not, uh, more times than putting the principal hat on, I get to put on the bass trombone hat. And I love that. So I like being kind of a chameleon, go go either way from first to bass to just second. And I, I just think, I just love it. It's really a lot of fun to sit next to these two guys. Yeah. Jim, how about well, I mean, it's, as as Steve started on, um, you know, every member of the section has their role and has their their responsibility, and I've got a, a meaningful and very real responsibility to contribute. And my contributions might come in the way of when, as Toby said, we were discussing things. There might be things that I things that uh, I have to say, and I can feel very free to say them. Yeah. At the same time, it's also my job to respect. Um, the leadership, and when all is said and done, somebody has to make a decision. Especially if there's, if we don't necessarily completely agree on how to do something or not, um, it's my job to respect the principal's authority. And you know, whether in New York with Joe, or whether I was assisting um, and sitting first when I was in New York, and David and Don would do the same thing. They would say, you know, how do you want to do this? Or I could look down and say, you know, I think we should maybe we can try not breathing there. And we might have discussion, but ultimately somebody has to make the decision in order for the section to work well. Mm-hmm. And Steve's and my job is to contribute um, for Toby's decision-making, but ultimately, if 
the buck has to stop somewhere. And so we, it's our job to enable Toby to do that to the best of his ability. The cool thing about the bass drum on chair is that um, most oftentimes I'm the lowest voice of the trombones, but sometimes I'm the middle voice, you know, the second lowest voice of the whole brass. Sometimes the tuba and I are in a unit. And so my job is to understand where exactly my role is. Am I with the trombones? Am I with the tuba? Are we all part of one big thing? And what needs to come out and what doesn't? And it changes. You know, if, if I've got to play something with Mike Roylands, our principal tuba, you know, maybe I'll, I'll put a little bit more... Um, a little bit more guts in the sound, or a little bit more zip in the sound, just to to work within his. Whereas if we're doing something with a section, I'll try to either warm it out or make sure not to be too much, so I'm supportive while allowing Toby's voice on the top to sit on top without him having to push. So mm-hmm. it's a really cool it's a really cool function this particular position. But they all have jobs and they all have responsibilities. I mean, yeah. Steve's position when you're whenever I've played second, it's always been. Hey, you got to be the meat in the sandwich. You, know? you don't yeah. want to be one. You don't want to have two thick slices of bread and one little slice of bologna in there. You know, you got to have enough meat to match oh, what yeah. you got on the other side. Well, and the great thing is, we we talk about this. It's a constant communication mm-hmm. about balance, pitch. You're hearing enough of me. I mean, and so you have to throw the just let the ego out the door and just you know just say, hey, you know, are we balanced here? Are we not? Let me know. You know, and so and so luckily we've got that here. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that's the great thing about this section. Yeah, it strikes me, even when you guys were talking about the hall, um, one of the qualities that kind of underlies everything is that you listen. You guys clearly uh, have immense talent levels and abilities, but if, you, if you're not listening all the time, and I think it transcends genres of music. I mean, uh, where I live in the commercial and jazz world, you have to listen, yeah. you know, and you have to react. And yeah. good point that you're making, Jim, is that, you know, somebody has to be the... The buck has to stop somewhere in terms of articulation, dynamics, et cetera, et cetera. But by the same token, I can tell just by the way all three of you are, that's part of the, the huge success you're having is you clearly all listen. And that, I think, is for our viewers, I think it's a really important thing for young players to, to understand that even when you get to this elite level, it's constant listening and constant, uh, you know, kind of musical flexibility. Um you know, we all do, but you three have an important connection and relationship with the great Joe Alessi. Um, I was fortunate to uh, interview Joe a couple months back for, for this series, for the Bonapic series, and he was as inspiring as ever. I mean, he's as fired up as he was when I first talked to him 30 years ago when he was at Curtis, and uh, I had a great, had a great time uh, seeing him and talking with him, and we had a good, really uh, enjoyable afternoon. At any rate, I know all three of you have a connection with him, and I just if you could share... One quick memory or one quick thought or uh, one of your, your, your favorite thoughts about Joe. Um, Jim, obviously you've spent a lot of time with him, so maybe we'll start with you on this one, but uh, just what you think of when you think of uh, Joe Lassie. I mean, there's one thing I will never, ever forget, and that's the kindness he showed me when, like I said uh, before with my background, my family didn't have resources. And uh, when I was in high school in particular, and he knew that and he understood that, and he said, yeah, I still want to work with you anyway. And so I, uh, I went to his house for a lesson. I tried to pay him. He said, no, no, no. He said, no, I'm, I just want to do this. And so I went to the next lesson. I tried to pay him. He said, if you try to pay me again, you will not walk in this door <laughs> anymore, ever. I said, okay. Thank you, Mr. Lassie. <laughs> Thank you. And just this generosity of uh, giving up Saturday mornings and that kind of time with me, I will never forget that. That will always be an... Um, 
he will always have a very, very special place for me for that very personal uh, personal connection mm. that he was very magnanimous about. It was wonderful. That's a great story. Steve? Well, I can't say enough great things about Joe. Uh, he he uh, emerged in, in my in my in school, you know, when I was trying to become a better trombone player, he he emerged at the exact right time for me. All of my teachers were were really terrific for me. I mean, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be here if it weren't for Joe Dixon, Keith Brown, and I certainly wouldn't be here because of uh, you know without without Joe. Mm-hmm. Because um, when I arrived at Juilliard and started studying with him, um, he he put one hundred and ten percent into his students. And I really appreciated that. I mean, he was he's a firecracker in his lessons, mm-hmm. in our lessons, in everyone's lessons. And um, I really loved the energy that he brought in these lessons. And sometimes he was he was uh, he was hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, but you know what? That's what I needed at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I just I don't have a, a one particular memory. I just I look back on my days at Juilliard and. And studying with Joe, with just great admiration for what he's done, um, and it's very, it's it's to the it's getting to the point now where it's very. I mean, if you're going to get to be, if you're going to be a professional classical trombone player, you're you're going to end up working with with him mm-hmm. because he's he's so good at uh, diagnosing issues. It's so quick. Mm-hmm. Been to three of his LSE seminars, and and you know I, I'm constantly learning from the guy. I saw the interview that you did with him, and there were things that it's just it's a goldmine of things that you can learn from him. So, so yes, so that's that's all I have to say about Joe. Yeah, cool stuff. Yeah. I I can't say I have the same connection. Unfortunately, I didn't get to go to Juilliard. Uh, unfortunately, but I did take lessons off, and I when I was in Chicago. I finished my master's and uh, I, I didn't know what to do. So I started freelancing and taking as many lessons as I could afford. And uh, uh, one of the people that, that helped me was uh, Mark Fisher. And, uh, and I said, I think I need to go to Juilliard. And he said, he said, why? And I said, it just seems like all the people that have success I admire are, are coming out of Juilliard. And I, I just have this small window of opportunity before it's, practically irrelevant mm. uh, for me to go just because of, of age or time of life. And uh, and Mark said, you know, it costs a lot of money to live in New York and to move. Uh, why don't you just like, fly to New York as often as you can and get lessons? And I thought, well, that doesn't sound like a bad idea. So that's what I did for two <laughs> years. And, uh, and I got lessons whenever I could with Joe. And... Uh, that was at a time in my life when I really needed Joe, um, because uh, uh, the uh, the pervasive uh, way to to play in Chicago is to is to focus on breath and buzz. Uh, but I had just changed my embouchure, and there were some things that he was able to address insofar as the structure of my embouchure to make sure that it was intact and I could uh, continue on. Uh, with the two together, I was able to. Um, continue my career uh, as well or better than if I'd gone to Juilliard. And, and the fact that he made himself available was great. But the best thing about it was uh, I knew that I needed to get my butt kicked. 
Uh, now, there's not a shortage of people that want to give you a hard lesson. Uh, <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, if you go to somebody and you get your, your butt kicked in such a way that uh, it eviscerates your confidence, uh, it can be very damaging, in fact. And I've had a couple of lessons where I just am so embarrassed that there's all these details I'm not able to take care of. I just wanted to hide under the chair for the remainder of the lesson period. Uh, but with Joe, he always seemed to know uh, exactly what issues not to let go of. Uh, so this is really important. If you don't focus on it, you're not going to find the success you deserve. And I remember he was being particularly rough with me in one lesson. I was loving it. Uh, and then he like stopped short because uh, my wife actually uh, came to many of my lessons. She would be like, "Okay, let's go to New York." And so uh, we would go to New York, and and I'd see Joe, and then you know we'd have a dinner out, and then we'd go home. And uh, uh, so she's sitting there, and she's in the background, and and Joe like you just finished like, "No, you have got to fix this," you know. And and then uh, and then he stopped, and he like realized. Oh yeah, Andrea is in here, and then he like righted himself. He's don't don't think I'm gonna go easy on you just because your wife's in here. <laughs> that's, that's okay, Joe. That's why I'm here. <laughs> but so the the fact of the matter is, is that um, you know I'm sure we have the skills with all of our students to just uh, just give them a laundry list of things that are wrong with their playing. But to give them a laundry list that has like three, maybe four elements that are actually within their ability to fix and will make the most difference, so that they leave with a, a sense of um, yeah. a sense of progress and that, that success is available just via hard work. Uh, that's what I got from Joe, and that's exactly what I needed. Mm. That's well said, actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. It always struck me, you know, clearly he's turned out all three of you uh, great orchestral players, and and his dedication to his students is always. Been this striking oh, yeah. to me. He's just so committed to uh, giving uh, his students everything and giving them. It's great. Um, just to change gears a little bit, um, I've heard it said that the the three most solvent and well endowed orchestras in the United States are Boston Symphony Orchestra, Los Angeles Philharmonic, and the San Francisco Symphony. Um, whether that's completely accurate or not, I don't know. Um, but it's clear that the BSO is on solid footing and uh, that your guys' positions are, are, are in great shape. Um, you know, we've seen it a lot over the last few years in terms of uh, labor negotiations, bankruptcy, strikes, and whatnot. Uh, it's been a tumultuous time for the American Symphony Orchestras, uh, particularly orchestras like Philadelphia, Detroit, we're seeing it in Minnesota, Atlanta, Syracuse, and, and host of others. Um, I was wondering if you could just share your thoughts and, and your hopes and maybe your fears as well about, uh, you know, kind of where we're headed with the, the state of the American Symphony Orchestra at this point. Let's just start this one. I, I actually have some things to say about that. Yeah, go ahead. I, I think that it's accurate that these three orchestras are uh, on very solid footing. And one of the main reasons that, uh, and actually some similarities uh, between the other orchestras that you indicated. Uh, for the BSO, we own our venue. Uh, both summer and winter, mm -hmm. and, and in fact, we don't we don't have to do runouts for pops. Although we do have a, a tremendous following with the uh, Boston Pops Esplanade Orchestra, which is actually beginning a tour as we speak uh, to the southeast. Uh, a great following, and in fact, uh, uh, I think that the leaders of the management actually have done a really good job of uh, creating and maintaining um, a brand name and identity. Everybody knows the Boston Pops, uh, and 
uh, it's continuing on. Um, I don't think it's extraordinary to think that there would be um, uh, some economic restructuring just because of uh, the fallout of what's happened in the U.S. economy over the last 10 years. Um, uh, but that said, uh, the deeper concern that I have is actually uh, where cultural education is in the U.S. Um, I think in, in larger cities like we're located in, there's a tremendous cultural appetite for the arts. Uh, and that isn't just with music. That's, in fact, um, with uh, graphic art and, uh, and film. We live in a, in a great town of education. There is, at any given moment, anywhere from 250,000 to 300,000 students in Boston alone. Uh, and that is uh, a huge population of people that desire and cultivate things that are artistically fresh. They want these things close to them. They have an appetite for them. And, uh, and there's a lot of support for what we do here in Boston. And that's a wonderful thing to be a part of. Uh, I look out in the audience and, uh, and I see a lot of young people. Uh, some of them are, are students, of course, but uh, and music students, I should say. But there's, there's also uh, outreach to places where you wouldn't see you know, students that we would see at Berkeley or, or NEC, or there's like MIT, there's Harvard students, uh, where people have other other focuses for their study. All that said, uh, my concern is that, uh, you know, of course, being the son of music educators, I, I feel like that's, that's the, the big problem in the U.S. has more to do with uh, how we're educating our children uh, and what they think of music in general. For example, um, Dominic Sparrows, our trumpet teacher at IU, uh, and he said one time, you know, every culture is actually uh, in danger, especially with the isolated ones like the U.S. And actually, he was talking about Australia at one point. He said, um, people grow up wondering why. I mean, they, they, they think that uh, protecting institutions like museums and, um, and, and symphony orchestras uh, are important, but they don't understand why. And, uh, for example, in Europe, where the tradition of the symphony was founded, uh, people are exposed to and understand that uh, cultural identity is a significant thing to be protected and, and celebrated, that history to understand why it's important. Uh, not just that it's important because that's what you do when you're affluent or educated. It's, it's actually important because it's part of your heritage. It's actually important to understand where these things came from and why other people think that they're significant. And uh, I feel like that's the biggest thing that we have to protect is actually cultural education that we don't produce um, successive generations of cultural misfits, people that don't understand the context of why art and culture are significant things to protect and understand in their lifestyle. Hmm. Well said. Yeah, you know, it's it's heart it's heartbreaking to see some institutions having some of the issues that they're having right now. Um, you know, I, I went through it too in St. Louis in 2005, and and uh, to be on on, on work stoppage for six to eight weeks was horrifying, mm -hmm. and and the emotional toll that it took, especially considering that my wife was also on management, and um, we would we would come home, we would come home, and she she. Tell me, well, here's what we talked about in our meeting. Guess what? You guys don't have health insurance. <laughs> and I, and I come home, I, I come home from my meeting going, yeah, we have health, health insurance. You guys wouldn't do that, would you? And um, and comparing notes and going, oh no, this is going to be really interesting. And um, 
yeah, that was absolutely horrifying. And to see to see that some of the orchestras who you know, you can name a few uh, pretty easily, um, who are going through this right now, especially Minnesota, who's still on their work stoppage, is particularly horrifying to me. And I, I just my heart goes out to them. Um, however, there is hope. Um, St. Louis rebounded from this, and they got really creative. They got really creative with how they marketed their concerts. Their programming became more creative, and they um, they found connections with the public. And I think they're doing okay. That's the word. So they're doing just fine. And they're, so so one thing I can say is just. There is there is hope, but we have to be creative, and we the education not only has to happen with the younger generation, the kids, you know, to, to get them to love music, and 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 it's great. It's another extension of who we are, and, and a way to to be creative in ways other than just with crayons, and um, you know, just lots of different ways, uh, but also creative in how, you know, at the at, at the manage, managerial level. To, to be creative, to get new, to, to bring new audiences in. And, and it's not just classical music. I mean, one of the things that we that, that the St. Louis Symphony did is they started playing more pops-like literature. They'd have a John Williams night. They'd have a Star Wars night. Hey, and if you like, if you like uh, the Imperial March, you might want to come to the Planets uh, mm-hmm. by Holst mm-hmm. in a couple weeks. You know, mm-hmm. And so that, that would be a way to kind of, hey, Come check us out. It's a really nice time. So, so what yeah. Say about that? yeah, that must have been an interesting dynamic in your household. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had a red line in the house. Uh, you cannot cross. Uh, no, but we came out of that just fine, and, and uh, you know we knew it would be fine. But but yeah, it wasn't it wasn't easy. But it, but it, it, it's not easy. It's not easy. I mean, I'm just really I'm really feeling for for those orchestras who are having trouble right now. But I just I, I know that there's hope out there, and I think. I, I'm just very hopeful that things will turn out. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you think of the history of basically how orchestras get started, philanthropists, people with the means, um, people with certain means, uh, financial means, understand that it's important for art to progress, for music to progress. And so they come together and they form uh, a Philharmonic Symphony Society of New York and say, oh, gee, it's really important for New York to have an orchestra. And that's how it all gets started. And then eventually, as it gets bigger, they decide they can't run it themselves, they hire a management, the musicians get better. Um, but it's because with the underlying understanding that music and art are important. And to getting at what Toby was getting at, um, when we look at the state of education nowadays, there's is math important? Yes, it is. And are good language skills and verbal skills important? Yes, they are. And is science mm-hmm. important? Yes, it is. But so are sports. And not necessarily professional sports. All sports, they're good. They promote teamwork. They promote, uh, they have their place in society. And people who are really into athletics would support that. Music is very much the same way. It's, it is really, really important that as part of the culture that we be able to play. Children play, and adults play to a certain extent. We have recreation, and um, it's really important for us to keep that in mind 
when we go about with, uh, with educational institutions. And what we're finding more and more is in public, ed- public education, as we pull away from those things and focus on certain individual aspects of a child, child's education, you start to ignore other aspects of their growth. It becomes difficult in colleges because colleges want to see well-rounded people. So, yeah, good SAT scores, and you have to be involved in all these different activities, and yet we're not providing a means within the educational system necessarily to allow that to happen because we're focusing exclusively on certain aspects, whether it be um, standardized tests exclusively or, uh, or just those particular individual subjects. We need to educate the entire person in all aspects. When we do that, you start to see that all of culture and preserving culture, that's how you preserve it, is you educate the youth that, hey, this is important. This is part of, part of who you are. It's part of the American culture. It's part of the greater world culture. We have to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. all three get interesting vantage points for, to answer that question. All three uh, really good I think it's really valuable for our listeners and viewers to hear from great players of your guys' generation. Clearly, all three of you are in that category. Um, you know, you're in the process of shaping these brilliant careers, and at the same time, you you have uh, you know a firm grasp on what it took for you to get to the elite level that you guys have all gotten to. Um, all three of you teach here in Boston at New England Conservatory. You guys are active worldwide as clinicians and giving master classes and, uh, and, and give a lot as, as far as teachers go. Um, can you share your insight on what you guys look for in a young player that might be applying for New England Conservatory, another great music school? And then also maybe an extension of that, um, um, what you look for in terms of a young player who's just getting out of school looking to possibly sell in the Boston Symphony. I can't say win a position in Boston Symphony. I think it's going to be a long wait. But, uh, but maybe they're looking for a, a position in another orchestra or subbing with you guys or in the Pops Orchestra, whatever it might be. But kind of those two things, what you look for from, the, from a development standpoint and then ask after they get through a conservatory training. Sure. Well, you know, when you when you look, when we just had NEC auditions not, not too long ago, a couple of days ago, actually. And I think well, one of the things that I look for is someone who comes in with something to say. And, you know, if they miss a couple notes or if they, they you know, chip a couple things or if the pitch isn't quite right or the slide coordination isn't quite right, but they have something to say and, and can communicate. And, and they have thought about what, they, what the overall scope of the piece says and if they're able to make a phrase, um, those those are the things I'm looking I'm looking for because you know I think all of us we can we can you know give them exercises we can kind of teach them okay here's what you do you know mm-hmm. you know here's here are things to work on this but sometimes it's harder to, to to pull passion out of students I mean I, I want the passion to be out there on their sleeves mm-hmm. and that that's the best way that I can work with a student um, at the at the professional level. Um, for someone coming coming in to play with us, you're looking you're looking for someone with great radar, mm-hmm. someone who listens really well, someone who understands functions of chords, understands that oh they've got the the fifth you can't be too low on that or they've got the third you can't be too high on it you know and constantly adjusting and constantly listening and understands the style. Um, those are the those are the, the basic things, you know, and, and just are they good people, you know, I mean, just just a good person, fun to work with, um, affable, you know. Those are those are the things I 
that I, that I hope for. What you guys? I love it. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's. I'm sure we all agree uh, yeah. on that level. Yeah, I mean, uh, Dr. Suzuki uh, Shimichiro, I think, is his name. Uh, Suzuki, who did the developed the Suzuki Violin Method. Mm-hmm. He looked at the way he looked at music was that he was looking at his students and saying, "All Japanese children learn to speak Japanese. So why aren't my why shouldn't all children have some kind of musical development?" And he looked at music as a language. And so I like to take that same analogy when I have students that come in and they come into the college. If music is a language, okay, do you understand the language that you're talking in? Yeah. I mean, do you come up there in terms of what Steve was yeah. saying? You know, do you have something to say? It's, do you understand the basic musical language? How basically to structure a phrase? You know, so that if you look at language and you say, uh, you know, do you drop at the end of a question? Or do you drop at the end of a question? Or do you, if you yeah. understand just basic elements of phrase structure, if they've got that, a lot of technical things on the instrument are correctable, especially if they're coming yeah. in at 18 as a freshman. They're correctable, and many things are correctable even as a grad student. But how much of phrasing, just basic musical development, do they have? Because it's easier to pick that up when you're younger, and it's hard to pick it up when you're older. And if you've got a basic understanding of it and you're coming in as a grad student, that's good. If you don't have a whole a great understanding of it, it's tougher. Even if you play the instrument really, really well, mm-hmm. if you don't understand the basics of good phrasing or good decision-making, it can be tougher. So what I'm looking for specifically are people who just understand it and get it because they listen to it and they know how it works, basically. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can tell. You can tell if they're passionate about it. You can tell if they if they put on a trombone solo CD just for fun, just because they like listening to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not because they have to or their teacher told them to. It's, oh, how did, how did Kristen Lundberg do this? Mm-hmm. Or how did Joe Lessie do this? You know, and and you can you can see this in, in students who are truly interested. How does this work? So that's what I'm looking, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. I gotta say, I... Um, I found this to be interesting, actually. This is the first time that we sat in on NEC auditions together, the three of us. I just found it really interesting um, that, you know, we're all very effective teachers, but the things that grab hold of us in an audition is not always the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So, and this is not good or bad, it just is. Yeah. You know, it's like, um, uh, you, know, you want to choose a student that you're both going to thrive. You know, the teacher and the student are going to thrive together to, to realize success in the individual, the, the student, that is to say. Um, for me, um, the thing that I get excited about is seeing uh, a killer instinct. The reason is because um, I was not very talented, uh, especially after I changed my armature. In fact, I felt often dismissed uh, by teachers. Uh, that's not to say uh, that I had, you know, a bad experience with some of the notable teachers that I have had. It's just um, uh, I, I didn't always feel like teachers were eager to spend that extra effort, you know, to, to be my mentor. Uh, but I, I just had this innate stubbornness. I, I would say it's my own killer instinct that I was going to make success happen regardless. And uh, when I see that, that sort of quiet killer, (laughs) 
I get excited. I love it. I love it. Because I know if I can't give them all the answers that they need, they're going to find it anyway. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of me, like, suggesting that I, I don't always have the answers. You know, it's like, I, I do everything I can, but I might not be able to give them everything that they possibly need. What are some of the traits of the killer instinct? Traits of the killer instinct. I'm curious. Well, I don't mean to put you on the spot. No, no, curious. no. I think it's a, it's an excellent question because <laughs> it's sort of a, it's an unfortunately vague answer. Yeah. Killer instinct. So yeah. what, you want me to be packing a gun? What do you mean? <laughs> no, it's like, it, it actually has to do with, uh, uh, and, and this ties into the other part of your question, is um, uh, something that John Swallow told me, uh, who made a, a great living freelancing. Um, at a time when you could make a much better living, I think, freelancing than you can now. Um, he built a tremendous career, but he would talk about uh, the, the most you could hope for when you come in to, to freelance is to sit down and have quiet confidence. Not, not like jovial confidence. This is sort of like, you know, like, hey, did you hear me nail that one? You know, you've heard that. So, you, don't, you don't really want that so much. Uh, and you don't want somebody to come in just be like, was that good enough? Was that was that okay? God, you know, I can't quite figure out the pitch or the rhythm here. Um, can you help me with that? You know, like, I'm, I'm trying to play my part. I'm not going to, like, hold your hand while you try to play second. I need you to just be on me. Why not rise in a paper plate in a snowstorm, okay? Just just be on me and, and have that quiet confidence that, you know, if you don't get it this time, you'll get it the next time, and it's not going to rattle your cage if you miss it both times. It's, it's, it's okay. Uh, so, to me, that's the killer instinct. You have to have an agenda, of course. Um, but that, that sort of quiet confidence, the sort of like person that's sitting in the back of the room with a sniper rifle, you know, it's, yeah, it's going to happen no matter what. I get super excited about that. As far as the, um, as far as the other part of the question, um, you know, I think that what I would, the advice that I would give somebody that's aspiring to be uh, a freelancer, you know, it's hopefully on to, to bigger and better things, um, is when, when an institution like the Boston Symphony or the Boston Pops is looking to find a sub, there's any number of people that they can call that will do a great job. Uh, the fact that somebody gets called has as much to do with their incredible ability on the instrument as it does to our desire to hang out with them mm -hmm. for two and a half hours. Uh, there's people that, you know, they don't pass the weirdness test. You know? <laughs> and and uh, look, you know, we've all, we've all got our stuff, our, our bag of rotting vegetables that, you know, it's just, we've all, we've all got our stuff. And, uh, but, if, if yours is especially smelly, uh, it's, it's really not so fun to give you a call and, and, and sort of deal with that while we're trying to make ourselves look and sound pretty. So uh, you gotta, you got to pass a weirdness test. You have, to, you have to be a sort of person that we'd want to hang out with for, um, for a week and have a good time. Mm -hmm. um, but then also there's that quiet confidence. Yeah. you got to cultivate that. You have to practice it just like a lip slur. I mean, I'm not, by nature, a confident guy, uh, but I, I will, I absolutely practice it. Practice your game face. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. Um, well, in addition to being members of one of the great symphony orchestras in the world, you guys, all three of you, are active as uh, 
as soloists, as chamber musicians, as clinicians, as uh, teachers, um, wearing so many different hats and, and looking forward, uh, what are your individual goals for, say, the next 20, 25, 30 years? You know, Doug Yeo imparted a great Kleinhammer saying, inch by inch, life's a cinch, yard by yard, life is hard. And anytime I start thinking that far away, I get really stressed out. Mm. Um, <laughs> I start thinking things like, God, I just, I really hope that I can retire gracefully and I'm not fired because I just sound mad. <laughs> <You know, that's, laughs> like, I hope I can make it to, to the point that I can, you know, get my pension and then just <clears throat> gently let somebody else take over for me. I don't know much, but I'm reasonably sure that's going to happen. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, this is probably the best opportunity to, to make it said than other. It, it's, there are injuries that happen. And mm. I think the BSO is, uh, by comparison to other trombone sections, the big five, a lean section, you know, mm. minus mm. a player. And, mm. and so that situation would be, um, I think have a stronger possibility for injury mm. than others. And, and if somebody were to sustain an injury, probably me. Um, so I'm, I'm very careful about that. And I, and I think about um, when we have, uh, you know, Tanglewood in particular can be very taxing. Um, we go from Helden Wave and Mahler 2 to Baron 3 Pieces to Beethoven 5 in this, to Mozart Requiem, all in the space of two weeks. And, uh, it, it hurts, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I come away from that and like, think, okay, how can I uh, not only sound good, but thrive in this environment? And, you know, I keep coming to this conclusion that, you know, what, we're in a lean section. Mm-hmm. And as much as I would like to uh, take a risk here, I think I need to be careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, not a fun way to be, uh, but I do think about, I sure, I sure hope I can make it to 58 mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and not be fired uh, because I sound bad. Um, so that said, I'd love to have, you know, if, if that were to happen, I would love it if I could have a few recordings out there that are of me sounding good, like I deserve to be here. Um, uh, and, uh, and I would like it if I could have a few students that were able to generate similar amounts, if not more success for themselves than I was able to generate for myself. The fact that I have, uh, for all intents and purposes, the best remote section on the planet to work with uh, is just icing on the cake. It was something I had hoped would happen, and, and it did. So I hope that I hope that it, uh, these other goals that I have for myself will happen as well. But uh, as I said, I, when I start looking that far down the line, mm. it gets really stressful. And so I think I start thinking, okay, well, i got to just look an inch away, and uh, and then everything seems doable for some reason. Yeah, that's good. Well said, and I appreciate the the candor. That's great, Steve. How about yourself? Well, um, I think for for me, I just want to continue. My goal is to just continue to be passionate about the trombone, mm. and um, I mean, I I agree with Toby. I think it's just a, such a I'm so fortunate to, to be sitting between these two fellows and, and uh, continue to, to be, and these guys are very passionate about what they do. And so it's infectious, you know? Um, so I guess, 
you know, as a section, I, I want to continue to, we have our own goals, you know, we want to, and maybe they're not so measurable sometimes, but, but I think, I think we all agree that we want to continue to be passionate about what we do. And when we end up in about 15 years playing Tchaikovsky sixth for the hundredth time, we can still find new and, and, uh, unique ways to approach it because I, I actually feel confident that that's, that we're going to be talking about the nuances of articulation 15 years from now. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that because, because we, we grow as people, we grow as musicians. Um, but you know, we, we all have families and at the end of the day, that's what's really most important to all of us is our family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have our family, the three of us, you know, it's kind of, kind of like a marriage. Well, not really. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, yeah. But, but you get the idea, you sure. know, so we, so we have us and, and we have, we have our goals too. So, but, um, yeah, I think just the main thing is just let's stay passionate. Let's stay, you know, about the, about the music and, and we'll go out and do our own things. We'll, we'll make recordings. Maybe we'll make a section of recording. I'm, I'm hoping mm-hmm. for that. Actually. Yeah. You know, and so, um, things like that. I just, I just want to stay happy playing music and delivering, delivering, you know, hopefully inspiring music to, to, uh, to folks who are willing to, to sit down and listen. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Jim, how about yourself? When I was, uh, this is a really good question. When I was an aspiring student and I wanted a job, I sort of felt like I was climbing a mountain. And as Toby said, inch by inch. And it was like, with all my lessons were about moving by those inches necessary to go forward because that's how we progress. Mm -hmm. And I used to think that, all right, I'm climbing a mountain. I can see the peak there. That's like, that, that's a job. That's employment. And so finally I got a job in the Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Symphony. And then I realized, oh, wait, I'm at the top. Oh, shoot, I couldn't see. There's another ridge and there's, there's another peak out there. All right, that's the Philharmonic. And then you get there, and then you realize there's another ridge and another peak. And I used to think that the peak was finding employment. And I've since realized that these are just steps along the career. And, and if I, I get into you know, climbing Mount Everest, I feel like, okay, yeah, maybe I'm at base camp too now. And so my, my big goal right now is, it's actually uh, teaching and pedagogical more than anything. It's to, especially being a bass drum artist, it's to enable and empower students to continue climbing and to climb higher than I ever will be able to. Mm. And I think, I, um, I think my teacher, Joe, did a f- has done and is doing a fabulous job at raising up, uh, helping train new trombonists with excellent skills, really good foundations, and elevating uh, aspects of trombone playing that either, have been either neglected or less, con- less than consistent. And I would love to continue on that work, add my own stuff to it, and help at least be a part in enabling and empowering young bass trombonists, you know, this generation uh, of upcoming students to be able to surpass what I can do now to aspire to do at the age of 20 what I can do at 40. So that when they get 40, they can go places that I can't even dream of doing. But I want to arm them with with their crampons, with their pickaxe, with all the stuff that they need, and the um, intellectual know-how to know how to use that equipment so that when they get to those spots that I've never been to, they can navigate those areas and know how they're going to approach it. 
I would love to be part of that. I would love to see that happen. That's that's sort of my big long range goal musically. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also important, you know, as you said, there are other goals, family goals, you know, mm-hmm. to be around for my family to see milestones in my kids and in my marriage. We've been married 16 years now. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, I want to help enable all of these things to continue moving forward. Yeah. Well, great words from, uh, from all three of you. And I, I know being a bit older myself, it's, it is about the journey, you know, and, and, and living in the journey and living in the moment and, and experiencing all these things. And, and you realize there are other, uh, crests out there that are going to, that you, we're not thinking about right now. Mm-hmm. And I totally agree with you, Toby. I mean, I, I have my own, my own little goofball saying is uh, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Yeah. And it's the same, <laughs> the same idea as, as inch by inch. So yeah. you're staring at an elephant that you have to eat. There's no way you can possibly comprehend it, but one bite at a time somehow it ends up happening. So I think that's, mm-hmm. I think uh, that's a really valuable lesson for especially younger players out there that are looking at this somewhat insurmountable task. But it isn't. It's yeah. just a matter of, uh, uh, you know, one step at a time. So, mm-hmm. um, guys, I really appreciate you taking the time. I always like to finish uh, our interviews with just one quick thought. If you had. You know, because there is, there are people out there that want to be the next Toby Off and Steve Lang, Jim Markey. If you could capsulize it down to one piece of advice, just one thing. It doesn't even have to have anything to do with music. I mean, Peter Erskine, when I interviewed him, he said, "Be happy." That was his uh, advice, which was great. I mean, of course, so obvious, but uh, incredibly uh, uh, poignant. Um, anyway, one piece of advice you would offer to uh, anybody out there in terms of uh, young, especially young Turbonists who would be uh, interested in following in, in your guys' footsteps. Jim, maybe we'll lead off with you. Enjoy it. I mean, that's what music is here for anyway. It's for, um, it's for pleasure. It's for enjoyment. And so don't lose sight of, the fact, sight of that. Even as you are in your practice room doing scales or doing stuff that might not seem enjoyable, find the enjoyment in it because there is a bigger picture, much bigger picture to everything. Never, ever lose that, mm-hmm. that enjoyment of it. Great. Steve? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with, with what Jim just said. Just enjoy the process um, and uh, just, you know, keep keep your dreams alive. You know, my dad always said that, or my parents actually, they said, you know, you can do anything you want to do if you try, if you work hard and you try. And so... For the younger student, you know, if that's something you want to do and you want to play music for a career, you can do it. And we'll, you know, you can do it. Just keep the dream alive. Mm-hmm. I'd say I, I, I agree. It's just I go out in a different way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I hate regret. Mm-hmm. I just hate regret. Much of my life is like, uh, I'll, I'll take risks that I wouldn't normally take because I try to imagine how I would feel tomorrow in the moment is gone and it's just the time to have taken the, the opportunity is missed and I think okay would I be okay if I skip this opportunity and the opportunity could be like to fix the pitch on the end of a row shoe mm-hmm. or uh, I'd say Bordoni but let's remember where we are yeah, <laughs> yeah. so yeah so I, I think about okay so fix the pitch on that row shoe and uh, and then maybe he'll be there tomorrow. Uh, or you could put your horn in the case, skip that hour that it would take to fix the pitch, <laughs> and uh, and go have a beer with your friends. 
and uh, you know, either way, it's a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I try to imagine how I feel the next day, uh, and I and I and I think I I would really like to fix this pitch, hoping that it'll be there tomorrow because. Uh, I, I just don't want to regret. I don't want to wake up tomorrow morning thinking, God, I, I wish I would have fixed that. Now I have that thing to do today, or, you know, now I have to play that recital today, and the pitch is not going to be there, you know? And, and I hate that feeling. I hate that. I hate I hate that thinking, like, okay, well, you know, I had a cutoff date. When I was going to be done taking auditions, I was going to go be a paramedic, actually. And, and I didn't want to get to that cutoff date thinking, uh, I wish I'd practiced more. I wish I'd done more metro practice. I wish I'd done more listening. I wish I'd done... Um, that is a great watch. <laughs> <laughs> is that a zenith? It is a zenith, yeah. Bravo. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Got it at the end of one of the Stones tours and had well, a nice. slightly yeah. more disposable income than I do now. So we'll talk about that later. Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you know, but I'm slightly ADHD. Let's go right bikes. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, no, I just, I, I just, uh, especially with my career, I, um, you know, what, Swallow was probably the most influential teacher I, I took from, and he, I just caught him at a time in his life when he had extra, extra time to spend on me, and he's giving me all these jewels, these pearls of practical wisdom, and, and, and uh, I'm like, guys, Utri entries are really hard, and he'd say, well, you wouldn't count yourself a virtuoso if you didn't play them, would you? No. I better go practice. You know, and it's just like all these different things. You know, like why why aren't you doing more recitals, Dope? Because uh, I got these auditions. It's like, well, I think you're actually going to start winning auditions if you can do more recitals. Okay, so if I think he's wrong and I and I go through my life not playing these recitals, and and I get to that period of time when it's time to stop taking auditions, do I want to wonder if he was right? What if I do a recital and I try to do an audition at the same time and I prove he's wrong? It actually didn't happen. It's quite the reverse. Mm-hmm. I did a recital, started winning jobs. Did a recital, started winning jobs. So uh, it's just like a, a case in point where it's a constant adjustment of uh, how am I going to feel about my preparation tomorrow? And and uh, uh, what, what ends up happening is this situation where I'm constantly challenging myself. Uh, uh, you know, delighted by what I learned from the process uh, instead of it, it being a, I mean the terrible thing about it is that I'm constantly forcing myself into a place of discomfort because I'm doing something that I wouldn't normally do just because I don't want to feel the angst and anxiety that comes from a missed opportunity the next day but living in that question is far more enjoyable than living in the comfort of uh, the same day over and over again mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I always say that, like, talking at clinics and stuff, like, I say, you know, practicing, or I should say good practicing, is intentionally making yourself feel uncomfortable. Because we all get in that comfort zone of, well, I can play this, I feel good, I'm playing this. So if it's kind of an extension of what I think you're saying, it's like, if you make yourself, force yourself, I mean, I have the stuff I know that I hate to do that I know I'll get better if I do it. And it's a question, like you're saying, what it comes down to, what's more meaningful to you. And I I think it's a very healthy way to look at it. Um, Guys, it's been just a delight. This is the first time we've done a Bone to Pick interview with with more than one person, and you guys have been delightful to talk to. And also, it's been great just to hear 
your own personalities come out. You're three individuals, and you're, you collectively make up this amazing section, but you have your own thoughts, and it's really... I appreciate the fact that you're willing to share them with all of our viewers uh, today. Um, for those of you who are fortunate enough to come to Boston, make sure you come hear these guys and their amazing orchestra. They they make musical history night after night, after night and uh, they're going to be continuing to do so for many years to come. So make sure you check out the great Boston Symphony Orchestra trombone section. Jim, Steve, Toby, thanks so much for being with us. And thanks, we will uh, check all of you next time on Bone to Pick. Uh-huh.